This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 311, MacArthur, Defending the Indefensible. Even before the 48th Division, General Homa's main attacking force, came ashore on December 22nd, MacArthur had guessed that the enemy forces who had come ashore in northern Luzon earlier in December would only play a support role, their main task being to capture airfields. And that guess had been correct. But when the enemy also came ashore in southern Luzon, at Legaspi, before the main attack, the general realized his plan of stopping the enemy on the beaches of Lengayen was moot, as he faced a threat from the north and south. Perhaps General Grunert, the previous commander, had been right all along. Either way, the general now realized his options were shrinking, as were his chances of victory. Regardless, MacArthur now told General Jonathan Wainwright to give up protecting northern Luzon and only focus his defenses from San Fernando along the northern beaches of Lingayen Gulf and further south. So, as we have seen, Wainwright sent the Philippine 11th Division and the Philippine Scouts of the 26th Cavalry to spread themselves out along those beaches. To assist them, Wainwright ordered a regiment of the Philippine 71st Division, stationed in southern Luzon and on Mindanao, to move north of Lingayen Gulf to block the Cano and Tanaka detachments that were in northern Luzon, who would surely come south to help in the main invasion. As for the Philippine units north of San Fernando, the new northernmost defensive line, they were to concentrate on blocking the roads Route 3, along the coast, and Route 5 that went into the interior, as both could be used to get to flatter terrain to make for Manila to the south. But, as history shows, most plans go out the window when the first shot is fired. Still, Wainwright also had these units to call upon in case he needed them, the 21st and 31st Divisions, and two National Guard tank battalions of 108 M3 Stuart light tanks and M3 half-tracks, 
Think of long trucks with tank treads, but front rubber tires that had 75mm guns. But again, MacArthur's plan was to use the Philippine units to defend the beaches, as they knew the area and were well motivated. Still, as we have seen, they were ill-equipped with coconut husk helmets, and most had not fired the aged Lee Enfield rifles they were carrying. As for the American soldiers, the Japanese coming ashore to the Lingayen beaches assumed they would be outnumbered, but they were not afraid. After all, a pre-battle evaluation report said that Americans have the makings of excellent soldiers, but there's a tendency to physical and mental laxness. Moreover, a U.S. Army report backed this up by saying the average enlistee in 1941 had less than average education, resented their officers, and had no esprit de corps, and did not believe in sticking out their necks for anyone else. As for the Filipino troops, the Japanese accused them of having a lower military ability than the Americans. As for General Homa's plan, he was keeping it simple by heading right for Manila. To his thinking, with the capital captured, any further defending of the main island would be an exercise in futility. Thus, he would land men on the eastern and southern beaches of Lingayen Gulf, move south, past the Zambales Mountains near the southern beaches, which would put his troops in the central Luzon Plain, a rather flat, direct route to Manila. However, General Homa had already been through one intense battle just to get to this moment. Lieutenant General Hasaharu Homa was tall for a Japanese, almost six foot, but he mostly stood out to his superiors, not a good thing in the Empire's military, for his kindness to his men and his ability to speak and read English, for he had been posted to London for several years. Indeed, when in India, he had had a British girlfriend. But what really set him apart was his openness about not wanting a war against the Americans. This raised the hackles of the Imperial General Staff, and particularly the then War Minister, Hideki Tojo, and the Army Chief of Staff, General Gen Sugiyama. In the late fall of 1941, Homa and two other generals, Tomoyuki Yamashita and Hitoshi Imamura, were summoned to the Army Chief's office. He announced that Japan would attack the Westerners' bases in the Pacific. Yamashita would go to Singapore and Malaya, Imamura would engage the Dutch in the East Indies, and Homa would take the 14th Army to the Philippines. But there was a condition for Homa in accepting this singular honor. As much as the army was already committed in China, the general staff could only spare 200,000 troops to the Southwest Pacific. Thus, each commander was to take its respective target quickly, leave a small force behind, and then move on to the next theater. Surprise would replace numbers. Thus, Homa would be given 50 days, then the bulk of his troops were to help out in the East Indies. Right away, Imamura and Yamashita graciously accepted this honor. Not so, Homa. 
A thinking man versus a blunt warrior, he shelled his superior with discourteous questions. This figure of fifty days, how has it been arrived at? What was the enemy's strength? Did anyone know? Who decided that two divisions would be enough to take Manila? And what genius on the general staff believed that Manila could be taken in just seven weeks? The number of lines that Homa had just crossed with his cross-examination in terms of personal relations, military etiquette, and cultural respect for not disturbing another's wa or harmony were numerous. Instantly, everyone in the room was embarrassed for and because of Homa. So, they pretended his rude line of questioning never happened. But this did not put the general at ease, as he still thought it was a mistake to take on the Americans and the English. The two other generals stepped into this rupture by saying that the target date was more of a request than a directive. Homa would push his men to fight hard, he himself would fight hard, and he would take the capital as soon as he could. No one could ask for more than that, which suddenly cleared up the tension in the room, but not the anguish in Homa's chest. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As covered previously, General Homa's main invasion unit would come ashore on the eastern beaches at Baong, just below San Fernando, and further south at Agu and Damortes. And these landings would go on all day. By December 28th, Homa would put on land just over some 43,000 troops. Further, elements of the Tanaka detachment would indeed start making their way down Route 3 early that morning to hit the defenders from the north. The vast majority of Japanese troops that came ashore that morning of December 22nd received more disruption from the 10-foot swells than the defenders. A few of the Filipino units offered resistance, but most of the action that morning, again, there was very little of it, came from 155mm field guns fired from a relatively safe range. No surprise that the city of Agu, on the right flank of the eastern beaches landings, was taken within 17 minutes by the 47th Infantry Regiment. Just north of Agu, at Eringue, about one-fourth of the way to San Fernando, it was the 1st Formosa Regiment that came ashore 
with artillery and tanks at 5.30 a.m., whereas the most northern landing was at Baoang, just a few miles south of San Fernando, and that came at 7.30 a.m. due to the rough surf. Here, it was the Japanese 9th Infantry Regiment that was to meet up with the Tanaka Detachment to help take San Fernando, and then they would turn south to cover their northern flank. As San Fernando was sandwiched in between the Tanaka and the elements of the 9th Infantry Regiment, some of the 9th Infantry were then free to push on due east to take Baugio, about 18 miles inland. That way, the northern protective flank could be widened, putting Homa's mind at ease. Now that General Homa had some of his men on land and more with each passing minute, he could concentrate on his initial objectives. Secure the beachheads so additional troops could come ashore safely, capture the coastal towns in their immediate area of operations, which would prepare them for a push south, but most of all, deal with the defending units along the beaches. But this aspect had good and tense moments, situations that tested the invading general's confidence. First, at Bawang. The Filipino 11th Division had set up 30 and 50 caliber machine guns, weapons that would and did give the attacking infantry pause. Indeed, as we have seen, many Japanese casualties were created at this location, which soon left dozens of enemy bodies rolling back and forth, pushed or pulled by the incoming and outgoing waves. And it was here that a serious delay could have been served to the invaders. But in preparing this position, the local defenders had buried much of their ammunition in the sand. So when they started using these rounds, their guns began to jam, which forced the machine gun units here to retreat. Additionally, as the defenders did not have artillery backing them up, the Japanese quickly figured this out and either sent in tanks or shelled the machine gun nests with their artillery. With the machine guns silenced, the Kamajima detachment moved in and drove the Filipino troops back. Yet it must be said that many stayed in place and only gave up when their bullets were gone, or they were killed where they stood. Again, MacArthur knew they would be highly motivated. Others, it has to be said, simply ran away when the enemy came within view. But the results were the same. The Japanese gained possession of their relative areas. While this fighting was going on, the regiment of the 71st Philippine Division that had been transferred north was hoping to outflank the Kamajima detachment by heading a bit further north and then coming down, slamming into the invaders' side. But the speed of the Japanese infantry, not for the last time, had caught the regiment by surprise as they found that the Tanaka detachment and newly landed troops had already met up and thus faced the now outnumbered Filipino regiment. Of those Filipino troops that survived the first few volleys of gunfire, those men of the 11th and 71st Divisions pulled back to the east and south. However, men from the Tanaka and Kamajima detachments stayed close behind them. As for MacArthur's plan of stopping the enemy at the beaches, this then 
had been the extent of it. The other landings had been unopposed. As things stood, the retreating defensive troops that had not run inland were running south on Route 3 to Damortis, just below Agu. Problem was, the invaders were using the same road, and also heading south. If nothing slowed their advance, the Americans would find that a sizable, experienced Japanese army would be in between a portion of the defending troops and the capital, and the only ones in position to stop them was the 26th Cavalry Regiment. Indeed, a section of the 26th Cavalry had already engaged the enemy as Wainwright had placed them north of Route 3, but then enemy tanks came along and chased them away, forcing them towards Damortus as well. When they got there, the horsemen ran into more of their own, as they had been sent to defend that town. But that afternoon, the enemy came at the defenders with artillery and air attacks, the 26th retreated further south. But not putting all his eggs in one basket, Wainwright had previously sent C Company of the 192nd Tank Battalion to an area near Agu, again just north of Demortis. There waiting were other troops of the 26th Cavalry. The contingent of tanks were reservists from Minnesota, Illinois, and Kentucky, recently arrived. Together, they would head up Route 3 and try to stop the Japanese. Bill Gentry from Kentucky was with the tank crews, and he was told to support the cavalry. But when the enemy tanks came into view, he thought the cavalry were insane for wanting to go in first. Gentry pleaded with the cavalry officer, Let us go over there. We can do something with our tanks. You can't do anything with those horses and sabers. To this, the cavalry officer in charge replied, Get your damn tanks out of the way. They're scaring my horses. And with that, Filipino troops with American officers moved out on horse. Within seconds, their ranks were withered by enemy tank fire and automatic weapons. Now that this anachronistic counteroffensive had played itself out, with obvious results, the American tanks were ordered into the fray. But again, logistics, the most vital but least exciting part of warfare, dominated the scene. For the dozens of American tanks before the enemy, there was only enough fuel brought along for five of them to move forward and engage with the enemy. And the lucky commander of these five tanks was Lieutenant Ben Morin of Maywood, Illinois. As such, 2nd Platoon, B Company, 192nd Tank Battalion, readied itself. Morin was only 21 years old, but he had been with the National Guard for four years, and he knew tank tactics. Still, he was about to go up against a column of enemy tanks, plus their artillery support, and hundreds of enemy infantry. The M3 light tanks moved out just after 1 p.m., and uppermost in Morin's mind was that the M3 turret certainly seemed tall, an inviting target. Moreover, its armor was thin, and it had a flat front, not an angled one, to deflect enemy rounds. The enemy, in the form of Japanese Type 95 light tanks, came forward, 
accepting the challenge. As the two groups of armor came at each other, the Philippine infantry retreated to the south, and the other American units were either engaging the enemy elsewhere or were getting reorganized to then make a stand. It was up to the tanks. Lieutenant Morin and company moved out, heading up the road, causing dust to rise. Suddenly, several shells slammed into the lieutenant's tank. Right away, Morin's tank's front hatch was ripped off, exposing his crew to small arms fire. The lieutenant jumped down and tried to reinstall the hatch, but by now, the tank was on fire. Morin yelled for his crew to get out. Meanwhile, he started to look around, hoping to be picked up by the four remaining tanks, which, it turned out, had also been hit, but were still operable. This was proven as they were already on the move, heading away from the battle scene. Within seconds, Morin and his crew were staring at four enemy tanks who had their cannon and machine guns fixed on the American's chest. Morin raised his hands in surrender, probably becoming the first American POWs in the Philippine War. The other four tanks would get away towards Rosales to the south, but would be destroyed by enemy army bombers the next day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As the sun went down, the Japanese kept pushing south, relying on their incredible stamina. As the Americans and other allies would find out, the Japanese infantrymen could and regularly did march 35 miles a day, rarely on roads, and they were used to carrying pieces of artillery through thick jungle with little sustenance and sleep. Thus, the Americans and Filipinos were pushed back that night of December 22nd. Still, it has to be said that the men of the 26th Cavalry did not give up, regardless of their ignominious beginnings. Using hit and raid runs, the optimal way to use cavalry in this modern war, the two sides slugged it out as the Japanese kept up their advance down the eastern beaches of Lingayen. In fact, Due east of the town of Lingayen, along the southern beaches, at Benalonan, about 10 miles inland from the bottom southeast corner of the gulf, was where the 26th Cavalry held up the enemy on December 24th, and this with the Japanese sending in their tanks. As the hours went by, the invaders, getting frustrated, called in reinforcements, which pleased the horsemen, as they had no desire to fight to the death. They had only been stalling for time for the last day and a half as their comrades moved down to, through, and past Bilalonen, heading ever further to the south. That afternoon, as the fighting was picking up in intensity, the 26th rode away, having done their job. However, they paid a price for this tactical 
victory. Before December 22nd, the 26th Cavalry had 842 officers and men. They were now down to 450 of all ranks. Yet the Japanese had the last word, as they took the town and then moved on another eight miles or so, and now threatened Rosales to the southeast. Nothing, it seemed, that MacArthur had could stop the Imperial Japanese Army. But with the enemy at Rosales, Wainwright would try again. He had no other choice. Putting together the remains of his 26th Cavalry and the weakened 192nd Tank Battalion, they tried to bottle up the enemy while in the town. The time that was gained would hopefully allow the Philippine army units just to their south to draw another line in the sand. However, the Japanese refused to play along as their artillery and tanks pushed aside the horseflesh and armor before them, and then they did the same to the Allied infantry. The invaders kept up their advance to the south and east, to the south and east. Clearly, MacArthur's improvement of Plan Orange had failed. The enemy had not been stopped on the beaches. They had taken, and were now using, airfields in northern Luzon, and were coming south, using routes 3 and 5, heading straight for Manila. What was left to MacArthur wasn't much. One, he could keep hoping that his reinforcements would arrive soon, and two, he now knew he would be forced to commit more of his troops, his infantry, to create a stronger defensive line to hold back General Homa's forces. It was a gamble, considering he had just decided to put General Grunert's original Plan Orange back into effect, namely relocate all available troops to Pataan and hold out until help came. And for all this to work, he needed time. Time to create more options and time to allow help from Washington to arrive. And this time was to be gained by a series of ever stronger defensive lines between the enemy and Manila. And the first line was going to be along the Agno River near Rosales. In reality, the first four lines, designated D1 through D4, were to be stronger than the enemy had faced thus far, but still only delaying actions. With enough time, D5, the final line, would be heavily manned and armed. But even this was not the ultimate objective. For by the time the enemy got to D5, closest to Manila, the Philippine units in southern Luzon would have come back north, bypassed the capital, and turned down into the Bataan Peninsula, where another series of battle lines would be drawn. But first things first, the general estimated that he had about 60,000 undertrained Philippine troops, 11,000 adequately trained Philippine troops, and 19,000 American soldiers. But again, most of these were not infantry units. Either way, it was time to issue the orders, get the troops moving, and set up D-1 along the Argo. On the night of December 23rd, MacArthur sent out the message to all his command staff. WPO-3 
is in effect. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, first off, sorry for the background noise. The heat is on full blast. It is very cold here today, a chance of snow. And, of course, since everyone is doing school remotely, it doesn't mean anything as far as school being closed, so my girls are depressed. Anyway, um, I just wanted to take a minute and thank uh, some donators and uh, say hi to some new members. And I can't remember if I did this on the last episode, but I would certainly like to say hi to Emily Alexander, who got her relative, I think father, father-in-law, David Rice, a mug for Christmas. So, David, hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening to the podcast. As for those that have made donations, I would like to thank David Wickham. However, David, I have to tell you, in this family, and we are a very intense pride and prejudice family, my daughter has a poster that says, are you a Wickham or a Darcy? Alas, we are all Darcy's, so I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings too much. I would also like to thank Mark Porter and Eric Lim. And as far as the latest members, uh, there's Brian Kilkelly, cool name. Thank you, Brian, very much. And Ash Jones from New Zealand, who sent a very nice email. Thank you, Ash. I really do appreciate that. And to let you know, New Zealand captured the heart of myself and my family. We, we were there a couple of years ago. Hope to go back one day post-COVID. As far as the other members, uh, Alberto Dassum uh, and Patrick O'Kelly. So again, thank you very much, especially in these crazy times, for supporting the show. Uh, I, as you can probably tell, I'm trying to get these out roughly once a week. No more playing around because uh, you know we want to get through uh, the Philippines and then get to the uh, conference and then and then branch out from there with uh, North Africa and go back to Europe. So anyway. Um, I will see you all as soon as I can uh, with the next episode. And as always, take care, everyone.